Welcome to this omnibus of happy times and places. Basically, we take all four episodes, squash them together, and cut off the closing credits and the cliffhangers. It's pretty much what happened to this story when it was released on VHS. You know what the story is, you've read the blurb. It's The Robots of Death, a genuine classic. And my guest, well, he's done pretty much everything when it comes to Doctor Who. Hello, Toby. Um, my name is Gary Russell, and I have had one or two small involvements with Doctor Who over the years, nothing particularly major or important compared to most. Um, but you've asked me to do this little weird thing uh, that you wanted, where we uh, nominate a Doctor Who story for you to watch, and then you're supposed to guess the most important things to me in it. Um, this could be quite interesting, because unless you've developed telepathy in the last 50-odd years, um, I suspect you're probably not going to get my weird, strange, slightly obscure obsessions. Um, so the story I've given you to go and wear and watch is Robots of Death. I love this story. Um, it's not from my favourite era of the show or anything like that. But it's the sort of episodes that if someone says to you, give me a Doctor Who story, I've never seen the show. I think Robots of Death is probably the most perfect one you can give them because it's got a great story, very simple, very straightforward, looks good, sounds good, well acted, uh, popular Doctor, very popular and good companion, um, all round a good four episode Doctor Who story. So off you go and watch it and uh, enjoy it, obviously, I'm ordering you to enjoy it. And then I should tell you my favourite things uh, across the four episodes. Well, welcome back to Haydoak Towers. Uh, I'm about to embark on a new adventure in time and space. I'm quite confident about this one. Not on guessing what uh, my special guest has chosen, especially as he alluded to the fact that he's doing it very personally. Um, yes, uh, Gary was one of the very first people I asked, and I think when I conceived this, I had a slightly more convoluted plan. It was, it was like different points were broken up of things anyway anyway i've 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 since made it simple and just gone choose, choose your favorite things and i'll choose mine and we have to see if they're the same i think it was a bit more complicated than that at at this stage um i don't know why i've held off because I, I haven't done them necessarily in the order that i've got them um with the robots of death but i'm recording this on the 28th of january 2021 Still in lockdown. I hope we're not by the time you hear this. Uh, but this episode was broadcast on the 29th of January, uh, 1977. Uh, and I hadn't done that deliberately. Um, I fired it up and I thought, oh, just check. Just check when this went out. I've got a feeling it was around now, but I didn't think it was the day before. This happens quite a lot. Sometimes when I've done DVD commentaries. I did one recently. For the web of fear um with somebody who didn't do much on it but filmed on a particular date and i looked up that date and it was the date that we were doing the commentary but you know 50 years later but of course there's been plenty of times when i've done things when i've watched an episode of doctor who and it's been nowhere near the date that it was broadcast because i think if you watch doctor who often as often as i do the chances are it's gonna happen um but anyway you're welcome to my abode i hope that waffle has given you a chance to fire up episode one of the Robots of Death. 
Let's go glug some Lucanol on the sand miner in three, two, one. Um, I'm cheerful tonight. I've, I've, I polished off another story and I was going to go to bed and I haven't been sleeping very well. Uh, and I thought, I'm in the mood for Doctor Who. I mean, I'm often in the mood for Doctor Who. But this has sort of reinvigorated my 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 pleasure for it. And I think, you know, I know I'm having to talk through it, but I, I think our eyes wander with the internet and all of that sort of thing when we watch telly now, or my, mine, mine does. But I can't because my internet machines are all recording this uh, glorious... This glorious exercise you are a party to. What an opening shot. The model work. Uh, this, I, mean, th I think this is going to be an hour and a half eulogy. There is, uh, that's a brilliant model shot. Kudos to Richard Conway, who I think then uh, went to work in the, the film industry. Has Richard Conway ever done an interview about Doctor Who? Should have done. Uh, I don't know that he has. Um, it's the sort of person I should I shouldn't be badgering, but uh, look the way that rock falls because it's it's I guess it's shot at a, at a speed and then slowed down and then they go it's not enough to have the model we're gonna try and we've got to you know we've got to mix the the interior set into the the model it's an ambitious shot I don't think it's a hundred percent perfect but it shows them going that we want to marry up the two things um, uh, and, 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 a, and a laudable attempt that they pretty they pretty much yeah for the for the for the time i think it it's 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 great and, and i was i was actually quite reluctant to watch the story as a kid because the target book is so thin and the the adventure i'm not saying the script is bad because it's not the script is excellent but the adventure the story is fairly straightforward and simple and 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 and, and you polish the book off fairly quickly and it was one that i'd recorded onto cassette i wanted to do talking books uh long before they were a thing and, and so that's how i practiced you know that's, that's what i did i read them out loud it's how i honed my skill um but i remember not being in a particularly hurry to get it and then i i i i, I met a group of lads uh, in the place which was a comic shop in wolverhampton they were the first doctor fans i really met and for some reason they bunged on a bit of uh, robots of death and i was amazed at how it looked and i was amazed at the sort of interaction between the crew who i think are uh, again i think they're good on paper in the script I, I, as the book is a very hurried book um but the costumes look great and i think the reason they bunged it on is because this group of lads andy and roger and a chap called russ who i never met again actually i don't think but andy and roger i i i did um uh, and they're still facebook friends of mine although i haven't seen either of them for ages they had dask's jacket not the one he's wearing here he's got an outer jacket he's got a work he's got a work overall that's just terribly gaudy um so maybe they stuck it on for that but i i, I was attracted to it. because it was an early vhs that was available i think i then got it because i don't think it had been hard had it been hard but i must have got it after that which surprised me but anyway because it was an early vhs and it was edited so i i i then got it um and was amazed because i had i mean i love this era i love the the holmes hinchcliffe era and and the benchmark for those that you know the 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 sort of average of, of a hinchcliffe holmes is a is a seven or eight out of ten i i, I think they really dip below that just because the productions are so good and, and and there's a rigorousness and a consistency uh to how they're presented and the core uh whether it be tom baker and louise jameson or tom baker and Elizabeth Sladen is so strong 
Um, I prefer this TARDIS console room now. Um, I I found it quite underwhelming then, but I I I I. I it's a laudable approach. I like. I like the idea of the the wooden panels. I I think maybe I'd like the console a bit bigger. The console looks a a little bit like a small writing desk, and um, I think you need a little bit more to power you through time and space. But I like the shadows. I like the colours. It, it it fits in with the gothic, the gothic um, feel of of this era. But but I think the idea is perhaps better than the execution. And I also quite like the BBC Studio TARDIS, the bright one. Um, this should work better for me than it does. But, it, but but looking at it now on this big screen and with its uh, with its um, stained glass window roundels and stuff, it is great. It is great. But it it didn't grab me as a as a kid. So there's something there. Um, and. and I love the scene, the scene where he explains, which I've just talked through, the, the bigger on the inside than on the outside. They've never bothered to try. I'm, I'm still not quite sure I understand it. Her response of, that's silly. Uh, his then response to that of going, that's transdimensional engineering. There's a, there's a sort of, there's a slightly, slightly offended there. But she's dead straight when she says that's silly. She's not ribbing him. It's not joshing. Um Louise Jameson is so good, she judges... And it's a hard ask to play a, a savage who is nonetheless articulate enough to not be boring drama. Um, and she, she has to suggest the simplicity without sort of grunting um, and being staccato or... Uh, look, she counts on her fingers. She does so many little bits and bobs. She's ready... <laughs> no, no, no. Nine times out of ten. <laughs> See, there's already been so many good jokes that I've blooming well talked through. The dialogue sparkles. The, the dynamic between them sparkles. And again, I think, having read the book, I'd not expected much of the TARDIS explanation scene because it seemed to me to be stalling before the adventure. But because of the dynamic between them, because actually it's, it's, it's well shot, to, to explain itself and because it's got all the, the gags the 9 out of 8 out of 10 9 out of 10 because Tom Baker's constantly throwing in these witticisms now some I'm sure ad-libbed and some are in the script and the fact that at this stage you, you can't tell which is great um, Michael Bryant the director is on fine form he has a nice high shot there this is a busy workplace and they managed to pull off the fact that everybody is dressed like they're at a space disco the, I, do, I think these costumes are great. I buy the decadence of this society. They've got time to put makeup on. Uh, isn't it not like Warriors of the Deep where you go, hang on, you're on a hard-nosed military base and you've got eyeshadow. This, this is there as a statement. This is not to go, oh, look, we're being zany and from space. This is going, this is a decadent society where things are done by robots. You do need people to man the ship because the, they need intuition uh, and because you can't have everything fully automated. But they lie around getting massages. Um, they don't need to be in fully practical overalls because uh, they sit around eating grapes and occasionally rush to the control room uh, and do this thing. And they all hate each other. Chris Boucher, um, you can see sort of foreshadowing uh, Blake Seven here. Um, and some of the most fun of Blake Seven is where people squabble, uh, but gloriously. Um, 
Rob Edwards deserves... Uh, Rob Edwards is a fine actor. Uh, he was the original Scar in uh, in The Lion King. Uh, I saw him play Tranio to the Kate of Kate O'Mara, uh, and he was very funny in that. But uh, he's, he's done good parts at the Royal Shakespeare Company. But this must have been an early job for him, and he's also a voice of Zoannan. I guess he was in the studio, so he's, he's, he's already been in Doctor Who last week. Um, but he does this brilliantly um because the the sort of the person who screams and gets killed first is is often not a great actor in doctor who and is often given the very difficult task of sort of backing away whilst not moving his whole thing where he goes no stop i totally buy all of that um the, the scream he's about to give is a bit weird and i think there's something about it it's coming through the communicator and uh, and all of that and there's a bit of the script about the scream stopped it's a, it's a funny old thing that and i'm not blaming him for that but i think the way that he does the whole dealing with the robot and he's a bit oh god the thing's stuck and uh, it's it's those death scenes of the the supplementary character that has to die to get the drama kick-started d- often don't benefit from as good an actor as that or as good staging as that uh, and look, that's a creepy... We know now the robots are, are, are bad. And of course, of course, it's giving the, giving away the twist. Oh, the robots are the bad guys. But of course, what where the drama comes from is we know that, but none of these people do. So what should be a, actually a disappointment actually becomes an advantage. The way that robot came forward there, just to give a bit of information to Commander Yuvanov, uh, is, it actually then takes on a very creepy aspect because we know and and they don't. So we've we've had a, a great death scene from the from the annoying chub uh, uh, and a good performance from Rob Edwards, who I've since read on online um, is c- can be quite short with uh, with with Doctor Who fans. Oh, and that's a great model shot of the TARDIS, and I think they're having the little bit of video effect going over it that, that whatever the monitor's doing, and the and then the, the 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 shaft of light on the TARDIS as the model goes up. I mean, thought has gone into all of this. Why have that little video effect um, going over the monitor? I don't know what that signifies, but it makes it seem somehow more plausible. I can, I can understand it existing in that world. And it's it, it takes it a step away from it being a TV studio in 1976. Um, but yes, Rob, Rob, Rob Edwards um, did did my Who's Round and, and was very jolly and very nice and uh, didn't even... Make me buy him lunch. I bought. I think I bought him a sandwich. Um, uh, but I've, I've since said he doesn't really like talking about Doctor Who and doesn't like stopping for autographs and stuff. So uh, maybe I lucked out. Uh, he was interviewed. He was introduced to me by a by a fellow actor, but I got no uh, impression from him because he works at the Bolton Octagon a lot. Uh, that he was that he was in any way reluctant. Uh, David Collings. Tanya Rogers, who's in Gangsters, I've been thinking about a lot because uh, Philip Martin wrote that, and he's just passed away. Um, and these are great seventies um, character actors. They're all well. Tanya Rogers is the only one who, and, and nobody's ever quite spoken to. Her. I think she's in Birmingham where they they did Gangsters, but uh, her career didn't uh, carry on as as long as everybody as long as everybody else's. And I think if she'd wanted to be uh, involved in stuff she she could have been so um uh i know very little about her apart from the fact that you know she's she's around and i think she's there but and uh, and uh, nobody's ever managed to get through to her but uh, the rest of the crew they're they're a bevy of uh, welcome 70s 
faces and voices and i think they're all great in this and i think the 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 little bits of effort that have gone into the characterization of everybody including chubb um really help it that sandstorm looks great and 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 uh you know appearing on the distance it's a really good effect and that's a great way of doing the set of having those big um fan things you know the big the the the, the big venetian blindy things where there's a word for them and i can't remember um in the foreground and with us and then having the model shot through it is excellent and almost seamless uh and and again we I mean, this is a, a little bit of jeopardy at the beginning before we get the doctor uh, and Leela meeting the crew that there's there's danger already not from the main threat just from the work environment that they are in um haven't even mentioned russell hunter known to me when i first saw this as lonely uh in callan uh, who was a rather apologetic shabby figure uh cast completely against type and brilliantly so uh, and I've never seen him given a performance like this. I've seen him in a couple of other things where he's a bit closer to lonely. I think he's superb as Yuvanov. David Collings, incapable of a bad performance. Now, that's the one thing that when I showed this to my friends at school, they were like, that's a bicycle reflector. And you go, oh, couldn't they have used something else? Because one bicycle reflector can undo a whole load of work. <laughs> I had a... a this 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 is these this is he'd probably agree with you you see it's just little bits of that sort of sardonic wit that chris boucher has uh that just elevate what is basically an agatha christie in in space um uh and i remember when i first saw this I'd, i had read the book as i say the book hadn't made a brilliant impression on me the reason i'd wanted to to read it for my cassette that I my audio tape that I was doing was because it was easily the shortest book um but but I hadn't even picked up that the dumbs were black and I'd never seen any photos of the dumbs so that was another pleasant surprise of going oh okay the dumb the dumbs are black and it's uh it's a, and that's a, a, another color scheme um and, and I, I love these scenes be between the crew because it's the simmering tension, you know, and one of you killed in one of us and, you know, and everybody chipping away a little bit and Borg's, Borg's there and different people stick up for different people and then blame people. And, uh, and of course, we, we know it's none of them. We don't know that anyone's in league with the robots at the moment. Um, and, and then Dask there being very um, terse and to the point uh then Cass here uh who like Zilda is a sign of um uh multicultural casting uh which is not to be underestimated uh, at this period in uh in television let alone Doctor Who um good to see that sort of representation um and and Cass Tarek Yunus uh, and uh Brian Croucher Borg were 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 mates and um, Bryant has told me some very hairy tales of um, um, uh, late night curries and uh, uh, marijuana smoking in dressing rooms. <laughs> uh, love this where he goes to grab it and then it's corpse marker and Borg ends up left with it in his hands. That's a lovely little piece of business. Um, 
Dusk's hair is amazing, isn't it? Because I guess it's sort of in real life, it's sort of shaggy, appalling, sort of shapeless 70s hair. But the way that they've swept it there and given him that sort of elevated bounce is, uh, is rather swish. Um, and David Collings always had a very full head of hair. Can't quite believe that David Collings has, has gone. He was so present in everything we love from various Doctor Who's to... Um, he was in The Lord of the Rings on the radio. He played Legolas that uh, I listened to on a Saturday morning that had such an amazing cast. Um, and my mum and my brother sort of knew who David Collings was. Uh, he was one of those actors that people knew. Now, Gary Russell no, knew David Collings because he was in uh, that thing with him. David Collings played a character called Lord Dark. Uh yeah, I wonder if... Because uh, no, I've got to try and guess what Gary's going to choose. Uh, there's an embarrassment of riches I haven't even mentioned. Uh, look at SV7. And the voices are perfectly judged. I've done a few robot voices for, for Big Finish. Because um, I was in a, a, a Big Finish called Robophobia. Um, where I played a human character, but also played some of the robots. So then when they did one called Sons of Caldor, they went, well, Toby, you're you're the big Finnish robots, so you come back and be the robots. So I was like, yay, I'm the big Finnish robots. They've now done a series called The Robots with loads of robots. I'm, I'm none of the robots. <laughs> so there we go. I had a brief moment where I, I, I perhaps I, I thought I was, uh, 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 you know, uh, yes, a regular fixture doing a particular thing. Um, but then but obviously... I'm obviously not. <laughs> um, haven't haven't mentioned Kenneth Sharp sets yet, which are great. Um, I I think Tom Baker is at the height of his powers here. I love the way that you you know just the way he walks around there, picking up little clues, soaking in the information. Uh, he doesn't get carried away. There's a keen intelligence working away there as he soaks up the environment. Uh, and she's game and joins in. Louise Jameson is brilliant. Immediately, this is only her second story. Um, she's playful. She's intuitive. Again, it's that thing of this, this character who is uneducated but intelligent. Uh, a difficult tightrope to walk. And I think Louise Jameson is flawless. I, I don't think she has a bad moment in Doctor Who. Uh And SV7, Miles Fothergill, who, uh, uh, if my information is correct, lives in Spain with a Naimon. There we go. <laughs> you come here for all the good trivia. <laughs> uh, and that robot design is so good. I, th I think the only place it falls down is their feet with the sort of silver cardboard slung around. And that wouldn't be such a problem if there weren't so many close-ups. <laughs> um but I mean, when I when I pick faults in robots of this, it's, it's only because the faults I pick out will be pretty much the only faults in the thing, and I I just say it, you know, for full disclosure. I am I am in no way. This is a ten out of ten for me, a nine or a ten. I'm reluctant to give tens because my 
my my my world view is <laughs> is one where perfection is very difficult to attain, and I more so for me than anybody else. So um, I'm not I'm not disparaging other people's efforts. I always think there's uh, improvements can be done, especially in stuff I do. That's uh, why I keep trying. Um, but I I I, I think everyone. Everyone is triumphing here, uh, and it's interesting because because the, the wife in space, which was uh, which was a, a chronological watch by uh, a, a very witty fellow called uh, Neil Perriman and his fabulous wife Sue, um, who I largely agreed with their 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 findings. Sue, who hadn't seen all of Doctor Who, and was, I think they watched in chronological order. Sue did not like the robots of death, and it and it slightly disappointed me and Sue. Their books, they're available. Uh, it online it was a blog as well um it's great it's great um but they yeah they didn't like the robots of death interestingly because i think it it's sort of hard sci-fi isn't it in the sense although it's an agatha christie story it's it's unlike a dot of doctor who it's not set on earth um you know this society although i think that's one of its strengths that it creates a society and i'll be boring about this you know like you are about everything else toby and and don't do that american accent thing it's annoying um i'm, I'm aware of that i'm so sorry um um <laughs> god um stop listening to the voices um what am i saying uh that that yeah the world building which is a holmesian thing a robert holmesian thing that i think I think Chris Brouch was very influenced by Robert Holmes, and I don't, I, and I, I don't think he hides that. You know, he owed a great debt to him. But uh, Brouch is very, very witty of his own accord as well. But uh, so I think they're quite simpatico. I think they're quite similar writers, um, um, I, and I love Brouch's stuff. Um, I'd love him to have done more Doctor Who, uh, but we lost him to Blake Seven, really, didn't we? Um, but the world building in this is so effective. You know, the founding families, Caldor City, Lucanol. We don't know what that is, but it doesn't matter. Um, you know, just for, for for what could be a relatively simple setting. Uh, oh, and this is the part of the sand miner that is made of film. Um, uh, we used to have torches like that. I, I, I quite like seeing that torch. It's odd because then I think people would have gone, oh, he's, he's got a modern torch. Now, watching it, I cannot believe that 1977 is 43 years ago. And that's Carol. We hear about Carol, even though he's dead before we ever meet him. But he gets, you know, he's... I think it's clever to make him one of the founding families people um, because it gives him a, a piece of the action, even though he's he's an extra. I mean, he's literally an extra playing a corpse. And funny enough, this was one of the last adventures I experienced properly because I had it on VHS, edited all together. I only had this in episodical form, is that a word? When it came out on DVD, it was one of the first DVDs to come out and it was the first Doctor Who DVD I had. I got it on a Christmas when I got my first ever DVD player. So this is the first Doctor Who I watched on DVD and lo and behold, look at that. The only time, I think, in the Tom Bake era where the titles don't cut in, they fade in. The action, a bit of the action is bled into the title sequence which I didn't know it was one of the last things I learned about Doctor Who because I was so familiar I'd already seen this story you know 20 times but and I knew where the cliffhangers were so I assumed I wasn't really missing much 
but I was. I was missing something fundamental. Well, I mean, that's fundamental to me because it's a slightly different thing. These are all names to conjure. Duncan Brown, excellent lighting. Uh, uh, Robert Holmes, Bernard Lodge, all these great names. Um, there's so much in that. There's Kenneth Sharp, great sets. Um, and Michael E. Bryant, who uh, is, you know, is a stalwart director of Doctor Who. But I, th I think this is probably his finest hour. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is his finest hour. Um, well, it's great, isn't it? Robots of Death. I absolutely adore it. What do I like best about that particular episode? Um, I think I might have to... Do I choose the scene where the Doctor explains why the TARDIS is bigger on the inside? Because that covers... Because one, it's never been explained before. Two, when they do do that, which is sort of... It doesn't help the adventure at all, but it's a, it's a moment... Um, and it's done better than I expected it to be done having read it in the book um, and there's loads of jokes in it and it sort of encapsulates the relationship between the Doctor and Leela so I'm sort of choosing two things because I'm having the scene but I'm having the relationship between the two and that dynamic which is, is so solid throughout that episode um, there are also because there are also other such great things that, that design that model work the robots themselves, the dynamic between the crew. Um, no, I think my instinct is to go with, yeah, the scene where the Doctor explains why, how the TARDIS is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, just because it's emblematic to me of the quality throughout the whole thing. But what it does is it lifts something that has the potential to actually just be a, a trivial diversion. But because the quality of the production is so high, even that scene, which adds actually nothing to the story, is as good as everything around it. It's not just a boring bit you have to... You know that they have to get out of the way before the adventure begins because it's so it's such a rigorously mounted production, and it's shot through with such quality as is everything else. That uh, and as I say, and I, and I and I think I I sometimes overlook the regulars in this exercise that I'm doing because I take them for granted, and I don't want to because these two are so good, they are so pitch perfect. Their dynamic is so brilliant and they're two such good actors that bring so much to it and they elevate, they elevate everything that they do, even a scene with two boxes where basically it's, it's Dougal, isn't it? It's Father Dougal. It's these cows. If you haven't seen Father Ted, because you see, I think Father Ted was yesterday and that's probably, now. it's probably, they're probably looking up and it's 75 years old. It's the great Dougal, these cows uh, are, are small and these ones are very far away. That's essentially what the TARDIS scene is, isn't it? It's Father Ted explaining perspective to Father Dougal, but it's Tom Baker and Louise Jameson. Ha ha ha. What's Bar Barry? I was going to say Barry Letts. Gary Russell, uh, who's done more than a little to do with Doctor Who. Um, what's he chosen as his thing? So, episode one. I don't know why I did that. Episode one. One. Is a weird one. It's a very personal thing. Um, back in 1977, when I watched this, I was probably 13, 14. 14, I would have been, yes. 
uh, possibly 15, 77, no, 14. Um, and something made me laugh in the episode, and I have used it as a catchphrase ever since. So if anyone ever says anything to me that is a bit weird or a bit challenging or daring me to do something or anything like that, I always go, oh, nice try, Zilda. Uvalnov says that to her in episode one, and it's my favourite thing in the history of the universe. And I say it all the time to people, and they all think I'm completely mad, especially people who don't know Doctor Who, and then I have to explain it's a line from Doctor Who, and then they kind of walk away from me, and I never see them again. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my favourite thing from episode one. I told you these were going to be hard. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I know I... I it, I rarely stand a chance with this in a whole of 25 minutes choosing the same thing as somebody else. But, you know, occasionally you go, Reboss Operation, the bin row scene, it's going to be that. I don't think looking at that, I was ever going to get anywhere close to the nine nice try Zilda. But what I love about this process is that everybody creates this very loose format that uh, I've imposed upon them in their own image and that's perfectly legitimate i'm absolutely screwed so i <laughs> i i think i'm going to aim to try and get one of gary's and i'll see that as a as a victory um i love the robots of death i hope you love the robots of death and i hope if you didn't love the robots of death coming into this when you've heard me talking about it you develop a new love for the robots of death or that listening to me talking makes you lose the will to live that watching the robots of death will 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 seem like a happy escape i think you'll find i think you'll find i think you'll find i think you'll find my brain got slightly addled and muddled about kerel he's not one of the founding family members but he was on board the scene of Zilda's brother's fatal accident. So he witnessed that, and Paul later says, you know, only he's dead. So, the, you know, that character could have been Chubb. It could have been somebody we, we knew, somebody from the Sandminer tomb. We could put a face and a voice to have been part of that story. But instead it was given to Carol, so giving a little bit of a backstory to the otherwise you know unknown to us extra which i just think is a is a slightly cleverer touch that's all to mean that we don't forget the corpse just because he's not a character that we know and he is still part of the story and i briefly as i say muddled that he was one of the founding families it's not it's not he has a slightly different sort of way back into the story so um i just thought i'd head that one off at the pass um but i yeah look that there's sometimes with this i have to work really hard um and as i say it was not a story that i thought when i approached doctor who the way that i did which was largely to read the target books first and then discover the stories although i was born when this was on it was too early for me to to remember uh any having seen it even if i did which i i suspect i probably didn't because uh, i would have been i was three I was three in January 1977. Um, And so I came to watch it with low expectations. And it just did... Doctor Who often sometimes 
does things not as well as you'd imagine or you'd hope. This is one of those where pretty much every element was rendered better than I'd imagined they would have done. And it's still got so much more to give. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to... Should I go to bed now? I haven't been sleeping, so I only go to bed and toss and turn for half an hour. So I might leap straight in to episode two. Well, good evening, uh, or whatever time of day it is where you are. Gary Russell there, setting me the task of watching The Robots of Death, a story I'm not going to struggle to talk about, which, uh, in terms of what this podcast is, I guess is a good thing. Uh... So let's see what part two has to offer. Um, welcome to my home, or if you're watching in the video, the disco where I live. Uh, and if you're listening on audio, just imagine uh, lots of funky lights uh, uh, taking us to the planet. Well, we don't know the planet. The planet that houses Caldor City uh, and the founding families and uh, all of that bunch uh, who make up the crew of the Sandminer, who, which counts amongst its workforce the Robots of Death. And we're going to crack on with part two. And we're going to press play in three, two, one, now. Uh, and mine was on pause because it had already slightly started. So even if you did manage to sync up with me, <laughs> I, was, I was already a few frames ahead. Sorry about that. Um, the chances are you've got as much chance of being uh, syncing up with me as I have of guessing what Gary Russell's going to choose because uh, uh, I think he's going to go the very personal route, which is perfectly legitimate. Doctor Who is tied up with our childhoods, I think, which is why it is such a powerful thing. Um, whether we have a happy childhood or an unhappy childhood or a mixture of both. Um, Doctor Who is like an anchor for a lot of those moments. It provided uh, either solace or joy or excitement. Um, so, yes, here's the Doctor finding Carol uh, in the sand miner on film. Not much film in this story. Um, uh, and it's useful for the... Uh, I always thought it was a bit like sort of um, breakfast cereal, this uh, this stuff that uh, uh, the Doctor nearly drowns in. Um, I see, yes, I suppose, you know, it, it, it could be flying in much faster and sort of cut him to pieces, but, uh, oh, that's a funny, that's a funny shot, isn't it, that, uh, of, of the corridor, which slightly, the, the robots get slightly... Uh, slightly wobbled um i think it's something to do with uh, maybe the inlay at the back anyway i've only just noticed that um so uh this is a great uh story that is probably going to be uh, I, i'm probably going to have the guilt of uh, leaving out some things that uh, i very much like um i like the fact the doctor's got a pipe thing that he, <laughs> can, uh you know it's a very simple it's sort of a, a is it a false cliffhanger? No, I, yeah, it's, well, I mean, he finds Carol's body, so that's an important development. Somebody has locked him in the, uh, in the hopper. Uh, so Cass is off. Now, Ca Ca no, spoilers, 
Um, one of the things I remember about the book is that when they gather a bit later, um, Terence Dix, the writer of the book, uh, gives gives the uh, you know the lineup of the crew and says the tall, lean Cass, but Cass is actually dead at that point. So uh, I remember I remember a continuity error within the pages of the Target book. David Bailey's Dusk. Uh, who Michael Bryant, I think Michael Bryant uses in, uh, I think it's Michael Bryant who directs the episode of Blake Seven he's in. Uh, and he was quite, a, he was about quite a lot, Bailey, and he was an associate artist at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and then sort of stopped acting, disappeared. Uh, and then appeared again. I remember seeing him in an advert for, he played a butler in an advert for something, legal in general or something like that. Uh, you know, oh, it's David Bailey back in the business and then he pops up in Pirates of the Caribbean. It takes quite a thing to take a break from the business and then get a really good part uh, in a movie franchise. Uh, and so then popped back and did some stuff for Big Finish and where he was David Bailey, all one word, all small case. Uh, and he was a mate of my friend Del Henny who is Colonel Archer in Resurrection of the Daleks, who I got to know when I interviewed him for a, for a documentary. And I felt a bit bad for, for Del because he cut quite a forlorn figure in that documentary and, and we kept in touch. And uh, so, yeah, he was mates with... So when Del died, um, I, got into, I reached out to, to Bailey to, 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 you know, get a bit of comment and, and to touch base. And, but um, he never got back to me. Tried him by a few means. Um, and, and I know they tried to get him for the for the DVD uh, and, and, and and haven't quite managed it. I think he's quite an interesting character. Uh, I think he's great in this. Um, and, and yeah, an interesting... And Peter Purvis knows him as well. Um, so I think he's had an interesting story to tell. He's an excellent carpenter, I believe. Makes beautiful furniture. Um, so that's the end of Cass Tarek Yunus, uh, who, like... Uh, Tanya Rogers is also in Gangsters, uh, the excellent uh, Philip Martin series set in Birmingham, the seedy underworld of comedy clubs and illegal immigration and gangsters uh, uh, that starts off as a gritty play for today and gradually gets more bonkers as it goes along, but is definitely worth your time. D84. Uh, I mean, where do we begin? I, I I hadn't even had him in my head as, but he's obviously going to have to be one of my favourite things at some point. And again, he's a character that's quite he's quite good in the book, but I had not anticipated the sing-song voice that gives him this curious innocence and yet offbeatness, and it's strange and it's not what I expected, and it works. And look at the confidence that she has sitting in that chair going i'm you know i'm gonna take this in my stride um I, I, and i also like uh affrontery at uh, uh at the fact that d84 is a mechanical man um and this scene is great between the two of them she she takes it totally for real um uh -huh, very sad. And of course he comes in and so then D84 has to pretend to be the dumb robot because he is a detective. That's the that's the love. That's a lovely idea. It's a lovely sort of twist on the 
on the storytelling that that totally works. But uh, uh, and then she kicks him in the ghoulies. She <laughs> well, no, he's grabbing his leg. But no, it looks to me. I I think we could say kicks him in the ghoulies. Do that again, and I'll cripple you. I love the way she does that line. I believe her. Uh, and and then he's like, he's got one up on her. Oh, he can't tell you. He's a robot. Has anyone told him that? This dialogue and character interaction sparkles and it's got important plot stuff underneath it. Glorious. Uh, no, but you can. Otherwise, you'd have done it. She's ahead of him. She's she's smart. She's not stupid. He is. And he is so good. I totally buy him. Uh and actually, he's one. You know, he's the hero. He's the. He's the, you know. He's the. He's the goody commander. But he's a. He's. He's. A, he's. He's a handful, and he's. A, he's flawed, and he's flinty, and. Uh, boorish, um, and and. And uh, David Collings is great because he, you know, he's the probing. He's the hunter. He's the detective. We, again, we don't know that he's a detective, but he's he's certainly the one. He's the one that we interestingly he's the sort of one that we trust because we've had these little asides from him where he is clearly on the scent for the the killer. I think he's at this point the the one that we know probably isn't the bad guy, even though we don't actually know there's a bad guy yet. I think I think we probably feel it can't just be the robots i don't know it's difficult for me to know because because i came to this know, knowing the plot but you know he gets this he gets this little moment alone here pity but no which he does really well um uh i love this scene uh this confrontation between the doctor and watch the way that sv7 looks at the jelly babies as they fly through the air that's brilliant a simple no thank you would have been the dialogue sparkles tom baker is at his um, obtuse best a very very witty exchange um so witty in fact that there's a line coming up that is so gorgeous that of course i i i tried to feed it into uh conversation at school and uh, thinking i would come across as very witty and actually probably coming across like somebody who goes shut up baldrick or any quote from a television program that you use to try and make yourself look funny and end up coming across you know you think you come across as oscar wilde and you actually come across more like rick from the young ones um what uh, yeah <laughs> what you what you, i'm standing here talking to you but what what tom baker does brilliantly there is that he does the jokes i'm standing here talking to you but he he does it with a quiet danger and with a, a sort of piercing don't f with me attitude and then gives a beaming toothy smile uh, and then that smile gives way to a man who's aware of the deadly seriousness underneath it all it's it's it, it flits effortlessly between that gravitas that danger that darkness and the you know the cheeky bohemian the intellectual there's so much going on it's such a multi-layered he's so brilliantly cast and, and and i think this is a scene that showcases him excellently um 
Uh, and, and I sort of like the fact that often when the Doctor turns up in a place, the whole village is against him or the whole spaceship is against him or whatever. Whereas these guys all argue amongst themselves about... Uh, it's not everybody's not it's not everybody going you're a spy which I think quite often happens some people go you're a spy and the others go yeah but you'd think he's a spy because you're a git uh, and, and I buy all these relationships the way that Michael Bryant places them all in the scene is very good um, I love the way that Tom Baker then you know, you know uh, rather quietly sort of offers his opinion uh, can I just say that there's a thing you know it's, a, it's, a, it's another an, another delivery that adds sort of the ebb and flow to the to the dialogue and the interaction uh and then that's the line i would have quoted at school the one he's just done you're a classic example of the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth and the size of the brain if you're tom baker and you say it it's witty it's funny it's a great comeback to uh, a thuggish brian croucher type character if you're toby hader can you say it to somebody at school when you're 12 i think you just come across as an ass. <laughs> it's like and i and i probably include myself in this it's like it's like the uh, uh, sometimes you see people who sort of dress in a way that on an elegant man would you know the waistcoat and the the cravat and the long coat or whatever looks amazing but on a different sort of man looks uh, ungainly and unconvincing and slightly embarrassing uh, <laughs> uh, now that's Dask's trousers um, I, I remember being very disappointed with this aspect of it uh, when I saw uh, Robots of Death um, is that it seemed to me very important that in a whodunit although again it, it, that's the first time it's been made clear that the, the one of the humans is behind uh, the robot killers so we have a shot of Dusk's trousers. Dusk is the only one. You know, in other stories where everyone wears the same uniform on a spaceship, uh, it could have been any old person's trousers, but everyone has individual uniforms. So therefore showing Dusk's trousers immediately gives away that Dusk is the bad guy. Just as we're, the first time we're introduced to the concept that there is a bad guy that isn't a robot of death which we think the title is spoiled for us, you see, but actually it doesn't matter because there's another thing to guess. Who's the villain? Oh, we don't need to guess that. It's Dask. So isn't that curious that one of the most important elements, the most important element of a whodunit is that they tantalise you with whodunit, is that as soon as we discover that somebody done it, they also tell you who's who's the dunner. Um, it, it seems there's so much attention to detail in the, the rest of it. Um that it seems an odd oversight. It's almost like they go, well, it doesn't actually matter. Um, but I think it does. I think it would be nice if that was a surprise and you kept guessing, especially as they set up Yovanov later with his with his hands around Zilda's throat and, you know, you give, you're given the idea that Borg might be sort of a, a violent person. And, you know, David Collings is shifty. Turns out that what he has to hide is is that he's a detective. Um, you know, and the, and and the, and the Zilda Yovanov thing, which is all about this founding family stuff that they don't explain particularly, but it's enough. It's enough. It's a thing you sort of buy it. It's good. It's great. Um, 
So why show Dask's, Dask's trousers? I think that's a shame. Yes, yeah, so Dask's jacket I have worn. I don't own anything from Doctor Who, but I have, and it had the, it had the, that's the great thing about theatre and uh, TV costumes at the time is that um, they would always have a little uh, label in saying the name of the character and the actor. So it said Dask David Bailey. Uh, I was once in a, uh, swelling the crowd in a, in a production of, the Scottish play, and I was a schoolboy college student, and uh, I wore Jane Laporte's trousers. She'd worn them as St. Joan. Uh, I wore them as a as a sort of soldiery type. Uh, Collings is brilliant. That that slightly sort of reedy voice that he has. That uh, that mercurial quality that he has. He moves like a hunter. Interestingly, he's he's. A, I think he's a very detailed and vivid and classy actor with a sardonic touch and uh, attention to detail and a wit you know now a witty actor doesn't always necessarily mean funny but a, a, a witty take that makes lines dance and makes characters sing and I interviewed David a few times and found it really hard <laughs> it, it was such and you know and he was not reluctant to be interviewed he said yes to everything he was so gracious and giving of his time so it wasn't that he didn't like doing it because some of the things that we we tried to get him for I remember you know he wouldn't have even been paid for it, it was an expenses only thing one of them and he agreed to do it and then he got a, a, a radio job so did it and he's, he's, and he's doing this stuff very well um I'm sure I've once quoted bumblebees as being aerodynamically impossible to fly and somebody shot me down in flames. Um, isn't it odd that Tom Baker pronounces Terran, as in of Earth, as Turan? Um, I, I bet somebody said, Tom, shouldn't it be Terran? I'm a Time Lord from the constellation of Casturbarus. I know how to pronounce things. All right, Tom. Um, <laughs> um, and Louise was great friends with David Collings. Um and 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 I sent Karen Archer, David Collings's um, widow, although they were they were separated. Um, the interview I did with David at the the Royal Exchange, uh, and she said, "God, what was wrong with him?" I said, "I don't know. I think it was me." She said, "No, it wasn't. He sounds like he's having a rotten time." Uh, but I, I did other ones with him as well, and he had a he had a slightly. It was like he was slightly away with the the fairies but it did have a sort of he had a slightly sort of sighing eeyore quality about him and i i never thought i got the best out of him i don't know if other interviewees would interviewers would say the same but when i talked to colleagues of his they'd go oh david he was always first to the bar with a gin and tonic with a lemon and oh his stories and i'd go god stories i'd say things like so you're in scrooge with george with uh, george c scott yes and you played bob cratchit that's a great part Oh, was it? And I was just like, well, oh, come on. So maybe it was me. Or, or maybe sometimes you get it when you switch on a microphone or, or whatever. I love the way they do this. Um, people clam up. Um, this, 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 this is brilliantly done. I'd call for a robot. And, and the way that is, oh, it's just get the box. The way that Tom Baker very casually says, oh, get the box. And he goes, yeah. I'll just, uh, and, and, and I believe them. They are real people doing a thing, just getting a box off a shelf. And then suddenly you're hit between the eyes with it. Oh, God, I'd call for a robot. 
it's that which is just a sort of putting the puzzle pieces together scene is is of superior quality um like so much in this story full of clever little touches and attention to detail that you wish they'd given when dask's trousers hoved into view um Oh yes, yeah, so, so yes, yeah, the, the the body count in episode two is is actually quite high. Um, uh, and I I I do like the the distinction between the characters. I I, I like David Bailey's choice of it, it makes sense for the character that he plays and the twist later on. But you know, it, you 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 buy him as this. You know, he's the guy that's. Uh, cool in a crisis well that's because he's the robot guy um yes spoilers but if if you're listening to this before you've watched the story i i would humbly suggest that that's the wrong way round um i i i think we we've already had it uh, there's a bit where david collings uh, calls it the forward hold rather than the forward hold and again that's i buy that 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 sort of i think that's a sort of naval way of describing things but that that would transpose to a sand miner i i again i like that that some sometimes in in areas like that um archaic phraseology persists um it's the end of this civilization uh he does it with a he does it with a sort of gravitas it's a word i've probably overused gravitas and quiet danger i will say about tom baker a lot but that's because we we characterize him as this sort of curly-haired loon this uh, this force of nature uh, mad eccentric tom baker but he's got dramatic grit and he's got a he's got a bite about him um yeah, what we know, Yvonne, what were you doing making doubly sure? So it's great because uh, it's perfectly plausible why Poole thinks that he don't, what are you doing making doubly sure? That's great. So all of this stuff really works. And you still don't quite know what Poole's game is. That's a brilliant shot of the back of Leela's head and her turning round uh, and her sensing the danger uh, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked with this way comes. Uh, I, 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 you know, the doctor is very dismissive of that, but she's right because she has the instinct, and she's had to, you know, p pick up different vibes as a, you know, as a as a hunter herself in the jungle, and that's and it's a great joke, you know. No, no, nothing's going wrong, says the doctor, all superior, <laughs> and the thing crashes and they all fly, and 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 it was very good, you know, what you call the Star Trek bit, uh, <laughs> where everybody flies across. That was very well done. Please don't say I told you so. It's full of such rich moments. I've only just noticed the tiger. There's a dead tiger in, in the ship. So obviously they have tigers on the outskirts of Caldor City. Now this, I think that's great with the robot rising behind her again. I'm, I'm noticing on this. I'm watching this on a slightly bigger screen to where I've seen it before. The, the robots are a constant sort of threat because uh, we again we don't quite know you know how many and why they're bad but they but they are a beautiful design and that that delivery is so good uh, that emotionless delivery they're a triumph the robots are a triumph. for a one-off you know for, 
uh, creation. I, I know they've persisted um, thanks to Big Finish, who've given uh, new life to uh, uh, lots of things. But in the TV series, you know, the amount of attention to detail for this one-off outing. Uh, I haven't even mentioned the glorious, gorgeous Pamela Salem. Classy actress. Um, I found Borky's dead. I mean, you barely make that out. You don't see Dask say it because everyone's talking through the wrist things, not on a verbal, uh, uh, a visual communicator. It's a gift. Yeah, I love all of that. But I, I, yeah, so there's another flaw. It's interesting. I'm picking out the flaws in this more because I'm confident enough to do so because it's still brilliant. Uh, he says, looking at some robots whose faces have half disappeared because of the CSO. Doesn't matter. This is brilliant. But I, I, I think it does miss seeing the death of Borg because he'd made such a good impression. Brad, Brad Crouch's perfect casting for it. Um, to have him die off screen and be dispensed with, you know, by a noise off. Um, ah, now that didn't fade. That didn't, that didn't bleed. But those close-ups, I don't know if you've got all those close-ups on the video. I don't think maybe you got the last one because, of course, the music screams in over it. I don't know. Can't remember. I'm not committing to that. Um, so Borg and Zilda are no more. Um, Norse Cass. Um yeah, I would. I would have liked to have got a proper death scene for 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 Borg. It's suddenly the uh, the suspects have shrunk, and they're such good characters. But it's amazing that you know, Brian Crouch is in two episodes of Doctor Who. But it's a, it's a great contribution, and he's a, he's a, he's a, he's he's a good chap. Is uh, is Brian Croucher once had half a carafe of wine with him at King's was it King's Cross Station? Um, he's he's a he's a good laugh. Um, I in fact. I was at <laughs> I was at a convention with Brian Croucher where he got so drunk his trousers fell down. Now that sounds like the sort of thing somebody would make up, but he was wearing a sort of tracksuity sort of affair. Uh, and, and and I'm not and, and you know I got very drunk as well. We, we all got very drunk as well, but we didn't get so drunk our trousers fell down. Brian Croucher did, and that's the sort of thing that only normally happens in anecdotes. But I I was there. <laughs> uh, he's a he's a he's good company and a good actor. Um, <laughs> I'd forgotten that. Oh, the things I could tell my ten year old self. So I could I could play Gary Russell at his own game and go, my favourite thing about the Robots of Death is that I saw Brian Croucher get so drunk his trousers fell down. Uh, but I'm not. I am going to choose, I think, that, that scene, uh, that confrontation scene, the interrogation scene where Yovanov... Um, you know, it says, what are you doing on this mine? I'm standing here talking to you. The classic uh, example of the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth, the size of the brain, that the, the, the jelly babies flying in SV7 following the little bits of um, spiky banter between the, between the crew. That, that scene, I think, encapsulates so much of what is good about this excellent story. Um, what's Gary Russell going to choose? Uh, it won't be that. He'll probably go, uh, I like Toos's hat because I once uh, shared a bus ride with it in Skegness. I don't know. Episode two uh, is a little bit more obvious, I think, because episode two introduces us to one of the greatest companions that never was in Doctor Who, 
um, from his very first scene with Leela and then Ivanov. He's brilliant, and that, of course, is D84, who criminally didn't go off in the TARDIS at the end. In fact, uh, the Doctor allows him to die, which I never forgave the Doctor for and still haven't to this day. I think D84 is brilliant. When you consider the idea of a robot companion for the Doctor, and particularly Leela, uh, D84 fits the bill. Instead, a few stories later, we got K9. And there you go. So my favourite thing in episode two is the introduction of D84. Oh, I got the impression there that Gary doesn't like K9. People don't like K9, do they? I have not, I remember when K9 was new. Um, I'm still sort of reading from the news that the Robots of Death is 43 years old. I don't, I don't, I mean, as I say, I don't remember it being on. It's sort of before my time, but I still don't think something that is colour that looks, you know, I can, black and white, I can imagine being 40 years old, but not colour, not Tom Baker. I remember when Doctor Who itself was 20 years old. Now, Robots of Death is double that. 77, 87, 97, 2007, 2017. Yeah. It's 44 years old this year. That's insane and slightly frightening. Um, damn. I, I mean, I definitely would have chosen D84, but um, see, so you've got to be canny when you play this game because I, I would have chosen, you know, I was probably saving him for a later episode. But Gary's got in there, which means I can't now choose D84. Um, so I'm going to go to bed now. And if, if, you, if you hear a cry, that'll be me lamenting the fact I didn't choose D84. Um, I hope you're still enjoying uh, the robots of death. Um, I'm going to go to sleep now uh, off screen. Um, so you'll just have to imagine that it happened and miss out on the experience um, to your detriment. Uh, much like the death of Borg. Um, uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying this adventure. I hope you are too. Uh, and I hope wherever you are, it's a very happy time and place. Are we ready to press play on the Robots of Death? Episode 3. Yes, please. Let's do so in 3, 2, 1. And here we go. Yes. Uh, what a good story it is. So, yeah, I'm, I may be reading uh, some missives I have from my patrons with observations or questions about the robots of death. I don't know. Just try to mix it up a bit. Uh but I might not need it because pretty much everything about this story uh, is worth talking about and uh, talking about in a positive way. And it's a slightly different font, isn't it, for, for this season, for the title? She's going. Yeah. It is that close-up of the robot in the uh, that opens the episode. Is that in the... Is that in the edited together video version i'm not sure that it is um i, I we had some uh w w we had some they're not pliers are they what are they called uh uh snippers there's a name for them dask is using very 20th century uh equipment to uh cut the zeta links um uh but i i 
you know, why do you need a, a you know, a laser cannon when a bit of, or a, you know, a laser sun probe when a bit of a, if you really need to cut a cable, a bit of brute force is, is, is what you'll need to do it. Um, it's funny those shots of the, the, the robots where bits of their heads disappear, or in, in that case, one just sort of moved. It's almost, you sort of think, is that two shots welded together? Well, I wonder why they didn't do it again. Um, I, I like uh, David Bailey's um, very clipped, straightforward, uh, professional Dask. I'm sure Dask knows where to look for the damage. Does that mean the Doctor knows already? Is he dropping hints? Has he, has he, did he see the bit with the trousers? Um, uh, Tuse's hat is quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? Um, I'd be interested to know how practical they were. She's very good at acting her poorly wrist here, Pamela said. I really buy that that wrist really hurts. Look at that. That's a brilliant piece of sort of pain acting. Uh, uh, Pamela Salem is is a terrific actress and she always plays rather grand uh, people. Look for a man with scars. Um, and I, I thought she might be quite aloof. I'm, I've had the pleasure of uh, being in a room with her and she was absolutely lovely. Very, very cheerful. Um... I, and I, I love the way that uh, uh, David Collings does that bit where he goes, I, I saw the reports. Oh, no, I was there. So, you know, he's again, he's a detective. He saw the reports because he's a but he. he yeah. So is, is the is the suggestion that he wasn't actually there, but he's, he's done his homework. Um, it's just they obviously don't have sort of the Internet on Caldor City, which is fine. They've spent all of their uh, industry at making fancy fancy clothes, uh, but they look comfortable. Those clothes, um, and you can you you know you can move about in them. Um, I think he's very clever," says the doctor. "Yes, I think he's very clever too, Doctor Who." Um, <laughs> and it's because if you think about it, the doctor's actually only been there about fifteen minutes. <laughs> Uh, but uh, already they've got some sort of rapport going on. Look at that um, phoenix from the, the from the mud. <laughs> My metaphor ran away with me. And they're having a ah. And here we uh, get a, a, a new subplot. If you see how shifty David Collings is being when he's offered uh, whatever SV Seven has just uh, offered him, he's he's he doesn't like the robots. I think that's a brilliant concept, the idea of robophobia. It's a fantastic science fiction concept because robots are a staple of science fiction. Phobias are a thing. The way that it is explained about how robots not having body language and that can make us feel uneasy is utterly, utter, utterly plausible uh, and becomes a, a, a sort of key issue with plot and character. Um, and, and I think, you know, just when you think this story can't get any better or or, or be using its core ingredients any more imaginatively, it, it bungs that into the mix. Uh, and uh, and again, you know, that, you know, let's just throw in a little bit of how the how the sand miner works. You get the water from the recycling, but we have these little things that we pop in it to give it a bit of flavor. Uh, I love the empathy that. Leela has with Poole here where she's why do you do it she asks it with 
and and I love the way that he says money, Leela. Uh, he he plays that beautifully. It's a lovely scene between the two of them. And I know that Louise was very fond of David Collings. I think this was the first time they met, but they they stayed in touch. Uh, she wrote a very nice tribute for me when I did a, did an article for him about Doctor Who magazine about this time last year. Uh, poor David died just before uh, the very first lockdown. Um, so was not able to have a proper send-off, sadly. But uh, I was able to talk to his son, Sam, and to his wife, Karen, and to Louise. Uh, Sam Collings, David Collings' son, is a, is a marvellous actor. Um, but David Collings was a great servant to Doctor Who. For many years, he was the great Doctor that never was, and then Big Finish gave him a, a, a chance to play the Doctor, where he played a Doctor for whom it had all sort of all gone wrong, uh, one less fettered by morality. Um, and he does, and because he's silver in sapphire and steel, so, you know. Uh, now, is that suggesting to us? I think that's sort of going, ah, oh, you should start mistrusting Dask, even though it's his job to have the corpse marker, and he knows in episode one what the corpse marker is. And yeah, Paul says, what are you doing? My job. So we're going, uh, we would be going, is this a sleight of hand? Is this suggesting to us we should be suspicious of Dask? W well, yeah, all very subtle and all very nice, but we've seen his trousers. <laughs> um, you know, Kaiser Soze, he isn't. Uh, <laughs> the best trick the devil ever played was not to show us his trousers. Ha ha ha. Now, that, look at that. Is now, is that that the that the robot's hand is slightly melted, as I've always thought, but I've had a question here, and looking at it now, no, it's sort of bits of goo, isn't it? It's not just blood. I thought maybe it was blood on a slightly melted robot-y fingers. Um, that, you know, in the robot, when it had killed, presumably, Borg, um, uh, had had then had its fingers mashed up, and, and the blood is sort of stuck to mashed-up fingers. But actually, looking at it there... Oh, yeah, and if the trousers weren't enough, here's Dask's eyes and nose and, and whispery voice. Um, I, yeah, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like the police squad episode called The Butler Did It, you know. <laughs> um, but somebody has sent, yes, it's Paul Taylor Greaves, who said, I'm watching it now. When Paul sees the damaged robot's hand, which triggers his breakdown, how did they get away with the blood and matter that is on the hand? Clearly, it's bits of Borg's innards. Grim stuff for a Saturday tea time. Yeah, it it is pretty grim, and I suppose you need it to to set off Pool's breakdown. Um, I I like the, the the stutter of the the robot. That's obviously a very isn't that a beautiful mask? And the fact that it's silver uh, and, and the lighting. Duncan Brown's the uh, lighting. Uh, and, uh, designer on this isn't he and he's a superb uh, lighting guy uh, he uh, does the lighting for Genesis of the Daleks as well which is also beautifully lit um, uh, Tanya Rogers uh, doesn't get a credit for this episode because she's only a corpse that's not always the way but uh, it does lead me into Mark Owen's question have you ever tracked down Tanya Rogers she seems to be one of the few actors to have eluded the attention of who researchers in the years following her small number of listed credits I hope she's well and happy says Mark I do too Mark uh, as far as I know she's in Birmingham and she, I think people have written to her just not heard back so maybe she uh, she, she just doesn't you know for some people you know an acting career is just a moment and the least interesting thing that they've done to them um uh, and 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 he mark also mentions uh, another 
Doctor Who actress that uh, we've never tracked down, but maybe we'll we'll talk about that when we do that story. Um, please do not. I I love the Doctor and D eighty four together. I I, I I I've had the pleasure of interviewing Gregory de Polnay, but I I remember there was a video that I loved when I was a student and I was poor and I saved up for it from Real Time Pictures. Is it called I Was a Doctor Who Monster? Um, right up my street interviewing the lesser known the lesser celebrated people including you know and it was all the people that played the monsters and Gregory de Polnay was one of them uh and he said you know uh, when this canine came along I was really pissed off he said that they didn't ask me to do the voice and I think that's a reasonable thing to be pissed off about but Greg has, has become a uh, a great drama teacher and in fact I when it was Doctor Who's 30th anniversary some mates of mine let me have a doctor who party at their house because they had a telly and a video i lived in a rubbish bed set on my own bless them I, I was so keen to inflict doctor who on other people and my mates went along with it and they bought me a sevens cyberman and god i forget it's unlocking memories i've not remembered and, and and they let me sort of program a night of doctor who and one of the ones we watched was the robots of death uh and uh and and d84 went down very well I have to say. And, I, and, and this is the um, episode, of course, where he says, please do not throw hands at me. I think it's, if it's this, not this episode, it's next episode. Um, I think it's this one. Uh, and uh, that went down particularly well. And, and one of my friends, and it's just reminded me, I, I sometimes, oh, what, how nice of my friends to indulge me. I had good friends there, and I think sometimes you take for granted the people in your life. Um, so thanks to those guys for letting me program a Doctor Who night in their house that they indulged, and they bought me a Cyberman. It wasn't my birthday, it was Doctor Who's, but they knew how important Doctor Who was to me. Um, and so this was 1993, and, and uh, yeah, please do not throw hands at me, went down so well that I, I was on a film set, me and one of the... The fellows who came to that do, my dear friend Mark, um, we were both uh, used in a film called Monk Dawson. We both had a handful of lines in that the, the, they, they filmed a bit of it to get the funding and then they filmed the rest of it and we were in the bit they did to get the funding. And, um, and at one point, I think somebody threw a rubber glove or something at one of us um, and, and I said, please do not throw hands at me. Uh, as, as a joke to Mark and we laughed because it was a shared thing and then the grip laughed and went robots of death and he was a grip called John Head uh, Head and Hands uh, and I've never met him since but very occasionally I'll do a job and somebody will find out I'm a Doctor Who fan I go oh I know this bloke he's a really top he's a grip and I'm like, it's not called John Head is he you know they say you know who's a big Doctor Who fan because we got on really well for that couple of days I was on that film and I consider him sort of a, a chum or whatever but I've met him once for that very short period but we had a meeting of of you know of a, a confluence of uh, of of the the right uh, obscure reference dropped at the right point in a piece of filmmaking um and as I say he keeps sort of creeping back by by name but without us actually ever meeting and I think I've met more people that know him um and and, and obviously a bit like me you know uh, amongst his circle of friends he's the doctor who guy um so john if you're listening we must meet up again in in another well let's not leave it 93 gosh that's, that's nearly 30 years ago it feels like yesterday um that's a great shot through the legs <laughs> uh somebody who's just dropped in at that point might uh wonder what we're talking about but um 
And of course, the, the, the robot's eye view. Look at the lighting in that shot. The beautiful way that the pinks are reflected on. Those robot masks aren't just a, a great piece of, you know, Art Deco design. They're actually very useful in terms of what they bring to proceedings in terms of what the robots actually have to do, which is to be impassive and scary and, you know, beautiful and decadent to reflect the, 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 the society. Um, but also scary as Doctor Who monsters and their scariness comes from the fact that despite the beauty of their design there is the thing that causes robophobia which is the lack of nuance and facial expression and body language very very clever um uh and I get and again Dun Duncan Brown the lighting designer deserves some credit for that Pamela Salem is very very uh classy and when i first saw this it was before remembrance of the daleks so it was it was a joy when she you know came back into the series she like rob edwards um is also a voice of zoan on so clearly they were you know when they were rehearsing for robots of death it was like you want a couple of quid to uh, be a computer voice um so she's actually she counts as being in in the three stories um but yes, please do not throw hands at me. That hasn't happened yet. I'm, it's, I'm not always going to uh, match the, uh, uh, the my words to the pictures. But I will try. For those of you that aren't watching along, I shall try and make sure we're uh, you, you know you know pretty much where we are in this episode. This bit is a fabulous scene that I hadn't remembered from the book at all, and is just. Glorious. I heard a cry. That was me. <laughs> and just and it's not just the voice. Gregory de Polnay's voice is great. It's it's the body language as well. It's 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 the way he sort of uh, says his thing and then comes forward, says his thing again, pauses, takes in the information and and with exactly the same tone because he's a robot he's going to say the same thing over and over again and a human would get more insistent uh uh you know if you repeat something it's it's natural isn't it to add some variation even if it's a bit more intensity or loudness the beauty of that is it's the and i as i say i didn't remember that from the book at all um and it's fabulous and and baker is clearly quite cross uh d84 as in the doctor um and this is this is you know again it's the, the we have the, the the bicycle reflectors being handed out now as uh, you know sort of death coins but um, uh, death coins in marigolds that's what I, bicycle reflectors in marigolds that close up was but it marigold sprayed silver um, uh, marigolds I don't know if that translates over to the states any any viewers abroad there are a few a marigold is a rubber glove uh, uh, which is what is obviously the robots hands are are made of but sprayed silver. Um, and yet, in a great piece of Doctor Who, you can have a whacking great close-up of a silver marigold with some bicycle reflectors, and it still be sort of, sort of chilling uh, threat of death. Um, uh, th I, this this was a bit that me and a, a couple of friends always used to go, oh, the the boing. <laughs> uh, and and I have to say, now you're showing off. I think is a bit is slightly modern uh for 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 leela i don't know or is it or is it i don't know i don't know maybe i'm wrong there it 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 does stick out a bit for me and i don't, i'm not quite sure why uh i remember that shot was slowed down and used in uh 
in a Resistance is Useless, which is a which was a documentary that celebrated a repeat season of Doctor Who largely by mocking it. Um, yeah, I, I can do whole podcasts about that. Um, uh, uh, Gerald Ratner was clearly a program advisor. Um, let's not get into that. But um, I, I like the 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 even though if you look closely, you can see how it's done the the the, the heartbeat through the through the curtain to show the 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 robots you know seeing that Leela um, is alive and well as it were. Um, this is a beautiful line: punch a six-inch hole in armor plate or pluck the crystals from a snowflake one by one. I, it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing, and uh, yeah, it's basically the it's the it's the iPhones of, of, of industrial tools, isn't it? Uh, it's probably got loads of things you don't need to do as well. <laughs> But love it, love beautifully explained and introduced. Uh, I, I, I can't use it. This he said, I, I cannot speak. <laughs> oh, he's just so delightful. And again, in the book, he was quite an important character, but and and a sort of dogged assistant, if you like. To the, but you had no idea he was quite so lovable. Um, but he's lovable because he's sort of strange. It's the innocence of D eighty four. That is so beautiful. I love Tusi's boudoir. It's quite, it's quite the thing, isn't it? Leather pillows. She's got a leather punch bag for a pillow and a shell for a for a, a bedhead. <laughs> whatever you like, whatever whatever turns you on, Toots. Um, uh, did I go off on one then? Um, I think I probably did. Um, th- yeah, so but there you see the doctor says take Leela Dask pool. So uh, he has been dropping hints that he knows it's Dask, but the one he doesn't mention there is is Yovanov, um, presumably because he knows he's under guard. Russell Hunter hasn't actually been in this episode yet. Uh, he uh, he's, he's got quite a quiet week this week. He comes in right at the end, doesn't he? Oh, look at that! She opens the door and the robot is there. That caught. Oh, that is very very grim and brilliant. Um, uh, uh, and this looks like it hurts when she 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 whacks it. She does a pretty pretty decent job there. Um, and of course, he takes his hand off, which is the which uh, heralds the wonderfully and rightly celebrated line we get later on. Uh, look at that clunk. Um, oh yes, yeah, Leela Leela with the spadoink uh, with the knife. That's what I was <laughs> thinking about. Uh, uh, there's not very often a sound effect from the sound effects library um, uh, uh, lets Doctor Who down. There's a moment in the Horns of Nymon, isn't there? Where's there's that? It's got a name, hasn't it? The bling. Uh But um, yeah, and it, I suppose it would make that noise, the knife, as it as it goes into the metal of the robot. But uh, it just seems a little a little comical. Uh, that's okay. Well, it's all right to have the odd unintentional laugh as well, but uh, I, I, again, I'm only being, I'm only being picky because otherwise this is just going to be me watching it and, and just loving it because uh, I generally do. Again, the lighting is so good here. I genuinely buy her fear. She's really and 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 I think women get a rough deal in Doctor a lot of the time, having to be imperiled and screaming, uh, and it's hard to do right. But I totally believe Tusi's peril in this and, and later on when the robot's trying to kill her and she's pleading with it um, is really really believable and really well done um, 
David Collings, I think, has a, has a, has a, a, a hard trick to pull off here. I love that shot of uh, him under the table and his knee there. I remember in the book, I hadn't, I, I never, I didn't quite grasp what had happened to, to Poole. I, I read it when I was way, way too young, um, and and I think it's a shame because Poole is such a. a a, a, a great character it's it's sad that from here on in in the drama he's reduced to a sort of uh, gibbering wreck because i liked him as a sort of cynical lurker um but it's important for the story and it's and it gives it it gives it that uh well it gives it all sorts of different layers and uh, uh, uh and plot but it's uh yeah it's it's a shame that it comes at the cost of a of a of a very interesting character, and in fact, you know, and it's a shame that Borg and, and Zilda die so soon as well, because um, you know I think we could have stood more of of them and their story. But that's a that's a good sign when you're when you're packed full that you you feel the loss of the bits that uh, that that go away. Poor old Pool, um, and it's not really clear in the story what happens to him, but I know that uh, you know there's been spin offs from Big Finish and uh, and other production houses haven't there um using all of the original actors which i like there's been life beyond the robots of death even if not in tv doctor who um uh, i like the i like the the makeup job on uh russell hunter here and i and i love his reaction to seeing the robot behind him um it's like it's great <laughs> um and i like the sort of understanding between these two I know Michael Bryant said that in the script, Yovanov was a bit butcher than this um, and that, you know, he cast Russell Hunter against type. But I think it's a choice. It's a decision that that really pays off. Ah, that's there we go. Look, it, that Tom Baker's face fades into the titles. It's not a cut again. I don't think there's another Tom Baker story where that happens. And it happens in episodes one and three of the Robots of Death. And that was the end of episode three. Uh cast list is a little bit shorter because a few poor people have been because john bleasdale who played one of the robots i remember i did a corporate video once for something and and, and he'd been used by these people quite a lot he he, he died before i got to say and i think you know it dropped into conversation that i i was a doc two fan it always seems to come up and oh the guy he was the, he was the lead robot in a in a doctor who and it was yeah, it was uh, john bleasdale um so there we go. That's episode three of The Robots of Death. So I will pause before we go to episode four. I've got to see what Gary Russell's favourite thing about episode three of The Robots of Death is after I have nominated mine. And I think I am going to cheat uh, interestingly, please do not throw hands at me. Isn't in episode three. It's in episode four, which sort of solves a dilemma because going into this, I thought, oh, might I choose that? I mean, it's only one line, but I think I've explained <laughs> in the wrong episode uh, why why that has echoed through the ages for me. Um, but I think that I heard a cry scene. I know it's it's nothing. It's a short scene. It adds nothing to the story. But I just love it. I, I love the performance. I love its very existence. Uh, I love the way that it's done. I love the performances. I love the way it's totally surprising. And I sort of love the way there's nothing quite like it in all of Doctor Who. So the scene where 
T84 just keeps saying, I heard a cry. And the doctor keeps saying, that was me, is my favourite thing. And that's not damning with faint praise because I love so much about this story. But I'm choosing that scene. And that sort of, sort of cheats because, but it doesn't, but it doesn't cheat to my favour because Gary has already chosen D84. So it's unlikely he's going to choose that again because I'm, I'm assuming his choosing of D84 covers that. But I think, uh, I don't think I could live with myself if I hadn't chosen something, including D84, who I can't choose as my favourite thing because because Gary's already done it. So that would be pointless, even though this is pointless because I know he's not going to choose this bit either. So I may as well have just said D84, but I'm sticking to the sort of arbitrary rules I've created. So that scene, and Gary Russell is going to tell me what he likes about episode three. Episode three... Um, I'm not a sort of visceral horror person. I don't like horror. I don't like body horror particularly or slasher movers or anything like that. Um, and yet again, watching this in 1977 when it went out, uh, one moment stuck out at me as being incredibly powerful and very memorable in the story. And that's the bit in episode three where Poole goes into the little area where all the dead robots have been deactivated by Dask. And he presses his little thing and the thing rotates and there's a robot there who doesn't have a nameplate. The only robot in the entire story not to have a nameplate. Um, and his head's all crushed. And he looks down, the camera pans down with him and he sees the hand and on the hand is blood dripping. And on the edge of the fingers is brain matter and a bit skull and a bit of a loose hair. Um, because this is the uh, robot that killed Borg. And as is said later, you know, Borg obviously put up quite a good fight. Um, and I just remember at the time thinking that was one of the most visceral and darkest things I'd ever seen in Doctor Who. You know, blood in Doctor Who isn't that unusual, but to see it with actual gunk, actual brain matter on a finger, uh, I loved it. I thought that was great. So that's my favourite thing in episode three. Interesting, because I remember... You know, being very excited, you know, because in the power of Kroll, when Thorn gets killed, you see a little bit, you see blood, but you have to look really quickly. And uh, then there's Kondo when he gets his stomach blown out. So, you know, that sort of thing's very exciting when I was younger. And I, But I, I remember sort of taking that bit slightly for granted. I, and I don't know why, because I would get exciting, excited by anything that would make Doctor Who seem adult, especially when it was, uh, uh, you know, the victim of so much Mickey taking. But through doing this and watching it tonight and having my missive uh, here from uh, from Paul Taylor Greaves and then uh, Gary choosing it as this thing, uh, I, I'm I'm reveling in this sort of new experience of, of, of seeing a bit I've seen so many times and rather taken for granted and actually slightly misreading, as I explained. I thought it was mangled robot finger um, has given me a newfound appreciation and a new understanding. And and I think next time when I watch the robots of death for pleasure, uh, uh, you know, that, that bit might hit me in a slightly different way. And isn't that beautiful? And isn't that what being a Doctor Who fan is all about? And, you know, watching these things over and over again, which is why I've seen the robots of death uh, more times than I've read some of the great works of literature. But I don't care. Um, so, yes, Borg's brains on a, on a rubber glove. Uh, that's a good choice, uh, Gary. So um, uh, uh, I don't get a I don't get a point for that. Oh, um, did you hear a cry? Yeah, that was me. 
Welcome. It's episode four of The Robots of Death, a fine Doctor Who story uh, that's uh, had quite a few missives landing in my inbox, because if you are a patron of mine, God, that still feels so awkward. Uh, but it's the way things are done these days, and I need to get over myself. Um, uh, I've I've uh, suggested to patrons, I've, I've given them... Uh, an idea of the stories coming up to see uh, if there's anything that they can uh, send me that prompts any memories or discussion points. And Duncan Harvey, hello Duncan, and thank you, um, says, just as an aside, I vividly remember watching this on original TX and also the Christmas repeat. I recently came across a PDF of the Radio Times Christmas 1977 double edition and thought to myself, I remember there being a picture of a VOC on the relevant page of the listings. And sure enough, when I got to the relevant bit, there it was. It really must have seared itself into my memory. I'd have been nearly seven at the time, and it's always amazing to think of such little moments lodging permanently into your memory. A bit like a message in a bottle that you finally get round to opening. Uh, I mean, so much of my childhood is snatched little memories of seeing a bit of Doctor Who and those. I mean, when, you know, when we didn't have access to the videos and everything, you know, a, a photo, just a photo was I mean manna from heaven and it was was something to be cherished and and I think you implanted things in your memory because that was your way of experiencing them because you knew they weren't to hand I I soak up information so badly these days and I think it's partially because I know that oh, I just have to click on Wikipedia whereas if Wikipedia or whatever but if it, if it you know if it wasn't a click away I think my brain would would be keener to store that information away and that's why I think uh, the human race's uh, capacity for thought, memory and cognizance is atrophying at an exponential rate and we'll all be mushy-brained uh, simpletons oh, within a generation. Um, <laughs> that's what I've decided. Um, so as one of the last... That's one of the last examples of Homo sapiens. Uh, <laughs> uh, come with me as I... Uh, uh, get sapien about episode four of a brilliant Doctor Who story called The Robots of Death. And I'm going to press play in three, two, one, now. And this story has been set for me, here we go, by Gary Russell, who was a name to conjure when I was a time tot. He was the, he wrote for Doctor Who magazine, but also had the the allure of being Dick from the Famous Five, and we had the Famous Five books that had the actors' names on the back, and it was a, it was an amazing thing to go. Gary Russell from Doctor Who magazine is is Dick from the Famous Five, amazing, um, and I've since had the pleasure of meeting him and working with him, and he's a very nice chap, uh, and answered the call, one of the first to answer the call to suggest a story, and of course he suggested one of the best Doctor Who stories of them all, The Robots of Death. Starring Tom Baker uh, and Russell Hunter, Lonely from Callan, uh, which was enough to, I think, get this kudos in, in my house because Callan was the sort of show that my brothers watched and it was big and grown up and people swore and smoked and died and double-crossed each other and oh, life was tough. Uh, 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 but it's a prime example of great character acting and, and casting against type and getting something really interesting because I think Russell Hunter's great. I, I doubt I'm going to pick an individual actor f for this story because they're all very good. I, I'm, I, 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 I don't think Tarek Eunice really gets enough to do. Um, it's not much of a part. And, and Tanya Rogers, I, I think, shows that she's perhaps the least experienced. But I, 
I applaud the casting of both of them. Um, uh, and, and they're fine. I think it's just that in this company, they perhaps come up slightly shorter. Look at that. The lights have gone off. Darkness in Doctor Who. That's what you want, Doctor Who. Often Doctor Who is sort of written up as atmospheric and dark, but actually because of studio lighting, there aren't many stories that actually take place in much darkness. Uh, so when the lights go off, but the, but Duncan Brown, again, Duncan Brown's lighting here is superb. And this is when, Pam, this yeah, this is genuine sort of begging for your life. And, and people don't say much that's eloquent, I don't think, in times of great stress, apart from no and please. And, and, I, and it's so plaintive and so convincing I, and, and hard. That is hard to do, I would say. And she does it well. Uh, uh oh, uh, the robots. We know that the robots, their anonymity is now uh, not, not necessary. Uh, uh, the, the, the sharp focus on the doctor with the robot in focus at the back. This is, a, this is the kind of, uh oh, the beginning of the last episode. The, uh, the iron fibers have hit the fan. Um, so, you know, the stakes are up now. The, uh, there's a robot revolution. Um, uh, that's, a, that's a slightly... Uh, uh, yeah the the reaction to having a hat put on you is uh, it, it 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 is perhaps uh, a little hard to believe but i do uh, but i do like the fact that sv7 because he's a robot of course doesn't lose his rag just goes v4 that is not the doctor and and there is something there's something quite charming as well as deadly as well as inscrutable as well as innocent as well as terrifying they they work on many different levels and that's a brilliant shot the way that shot is done because it starts from quite far away and we're sort of on the robot and then as the robot comes in we go in and focus on what looks like a dead tooth there's some very nifty camera work here um uh and yeah and the the, the lights have gone a little bit dark um a very, very mad scientist. Tom Baker's eyes are gorgeous, aren't they? Uh, 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 the actor David Weston described them to me as boiled egg eyes, which I, I do like. Boom! Please do not throw hands at me. Oh, I love you, D84. <laughs> and I love that line, which again I hadn't remembered from the book. Um, <laughs> isn't that just glorious? And yes, credit to um, Chris Boucher for who was a relatively novice writer, wasn't he? And he, he, he came in uh, and I think understood Doctor Who immediately and, and gave it this sort of sardonic wit, uh, this world building that, that was, you know, also the, uh, the trademark of Robert Holmes, a brilliant script editor. Um, Philip Pinchcliffe, a, a, a rigorous producer, who you know, because this is the era famed for sort of gothic horror, so I, th I think sometimes in our sort of memories and view of uh, this era, we sort of forget the the attempts at, uh, that 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 when they do sci-fi, out and out sci-fi, there's still a sort of hard literary angle to the sci-fi in the way that you know the scary, horrific ones are from from gothic literature. This this has elements and indeed ideas. Um, from from Isaac Asimov, I'm not I've not I'm not a big reader of science fiction. I'm I'm not sure I'm a. F Can I say this? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm a fan of science fiction, um, but I love Doctor Who more than anything. Um, so that's curious, isn't it? Um, and I mean, I've watched all of Star Trek: The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and all of Blake Seven and <laughs> and all of The Prisoner. Um, 
but I wouldn't say I'm fans of those things. I, lo- I love that that frozen robot with the lasers and probe in its noggin. That's brilliant. So, uh, and I think my my favourite Doctor Who's tend to be the ones with an Earth element. Uh, and I think Russell T. Davis's instincts when he talked about, um, you know, even if we're not on Earth, we need to tie to Earth in order to invest us as the audience. So this is where this has been very successful again because it doesn't have that. It breaks that rule and yet it works and makes uh, a virtue of it because although these aren't people uh, making references to places that we understand, the references that they do make we un- we we buy into, the founding families is some sort of caste system, some sort of class system. Um, there are detectives. There is a Caldor city. There is there is money. There is all of that stuff that that means that even though we we can't, we, you know, we we're given no image of what life on Caldor city is like. We're given enough information, and these characters are well enough drawn that that doesn't matter. Uh, and that's not, I would say, that is not easy to do. Uh, and Boucher. Um, does image of the Fendal and then doesn't come back to Doctor Who, and I think I think Blake Seven's gain was Doctor Who's loss because uh, I think he could have done wonders with, or maybe we'd have had a, a sort of a carbon copy of Robert Holmes or, or you know Robert Holmes a, a slight variation on Robert Holmes because there are similarities. I'm not saying there's is in any way unoriginal because he is but I, I think he shares some of Holmes's DNA uh, and maybe Doctor Who thrives on change and having somebody that's a bit similar is is wrong so no regrets but uh, I do like Chris Boucher's stuff the the frozen robots is a fantastic idea um, uh, again it's quite uh, it's quite unsettling and murder for the actors I would think because I don't think they're shop window dummies. I think they're they're actors having to stand still. Um, this this piping on the on the banister bits of the set does does look a little bit drawn on. But actually, in that shot, it it doesn't look like it's drawn on. But when it goes down the corner at the bottom, it does look a little bit felt tippy, even though it's not. Uh, oh, D eighty four pool is damaged. <laughs> oh, poor and uh, poor old poor old pool. Um, yeah, look at those actors. That, that's an actor on one foot on the stairs. Good for you. Uh, Tom Baker, very dark and brooding and full of sort of simmering energy there. You believe that he's a... And he's timeless, isn't he? I know he's got big 70s hair, but it doesn't look like big 70s hair. It looks like Doctor Who's hair. Um, whereas you watch other programmes set in the 70s and people have big hair, it looks like you're in the 1970s. I don't think this looks like the 1970s. Um, I said he was a hunter, all that about body language. That's so clever. And that's good use of Leela as well. Uh, robophobia. And robophobia, uh, of course, is robophobia. Two things I've done. I've done two things called robophobia. The first ever special feature on a DVD I did was called robophobia. And I, and I accepted that with open arms because the DVD range had been going for a bit. So this was the this was the the special edition of the it's the one I'm watching the special edition I'm on this disc of the robots of death uh sorry to talk through uh, uh Russell Hunter being very very good here 
uh, and this backstory which vindicates Yovanov and shows that actually with Zilda's brother he was doing a decent thing. That's all great stuff because uh, it's just all texture for the plot and for the character. But it's it's well wrought. It gives the actor something good to do. Uh, and it's an unexpected twist on uh, what we thought we knew about the character earlier on. Very detailed, very good. But yeah, I did this uh, this documentary. It was my first, I'd done commentaries, obviously, but uh, my first on-screen presenting. And I thought at that time only. So as I say, I accepted it with open arms. Uh, pronounced Karel Chapek wrong. We actually did it with two different takes, pronouncing it two different ways, but neither of them the correct way. I think I said Kapech, which is which on the day we just frantically went, should we do that? Oh. Uh, and we should have, yeah. Anyway, I wasn't the director. That was Richard Higson. Lovely Richard Higson did this great thing and gave me the great honour of yeah presenting my first thing on a DVD. And we did it in a lady's house. It's a 1950s house, which is gorgeous. And it's quite fun. And it's just a bit of frippery. And I thought, that was it. I'm presenting a documentary. Didn't know I'd do any more. Um, uh, and then I, and not like I did a big finish play, which is the second one I did, but the first one that came out called Robophobia. Um so if anybody's making anything called Robophobia, I'm afraid I have to be in it. That's the law. Um, so I've got Robophobia twice on my CV and they're two different things. Um, yeah, uh, and, and, and yes, Tusin Yovanov just spent the, whole, the rest of the episode going off blowing up robots now. But now, I talked through the bit in the hopper um, where I talked through all of it. I've got to talk through all of it. That's the thing. Um, Duncan Harvey says when Lisa, when Leela and Tusa are in the hopper and Leela says because that wasn't SV7 why does she say this I've never been able to understand why this isn't SV7 am I being thick I just think it's clumsily done Duncan I think what she means is that SV7 has had his command circuit overridden and so is now not operating as SV7 should and that's why he didn't recognise I, I think it has to be that um, and because they, they recognise people through vocally through the command print, I, I think it's just slightly clumsily done. Um, but I, I, I do agree, it does kind of stick out. Uh, it does kind of stick out slightly. Let me in, and there he is! It's Dusk! Dusk is the bad guy, um, who's now painted himself like a robot uh, and changed his jacket. So he doesn't have the Dusk's jacket, which is the one that, uh, that I wore. Um, oh, and Gary, yes, Gary mentioned that this robot is the only one that doesn't have a nameplate, and that's quite right, uh, which I, is not something I had noticed in the 30 times I have watched this before. Um, yes, Borg's probably. I think there was a f scene filmed with Borg about to get killed that got cut, or, or they didn't have time to film it, but... Um, uh, and yes, of course, of course, of course, Borg, Borg is the big and strong one. Um, body language, Leela, that's right. Um, the, oh God, I've just, she's, she's, I've just had that image of those publicity photos of Leela where she's slightly, uh, so sort of given makeup, um, uh, browned up, would you say? And, uh, I mean, I remember when I first saw it, I said, why Why does she look like she's got coffee on her face? And I went, oh, no, have they tried to, have, have they sort of tried to sort of brown her up? Um, which would have been really unfortunate. Um, uh, and 
we must be relieved that they didn't do that. Um, but they did. They change their eye colour, don't they? Uh, yes. So that's not Louise Jameson's natural eye colour, as we will discover when we get to the horror of Fang Rock. That's bruises on Pamela Salem's neck are pretty grim, aren't they? She's been through the war, poor old Toos. Uh, good names as well, aren't they? Toos and uh, Uvanov. Uvanov is a brilliant name. Uvanov, I thought he was called. Uh, there's quite a few names. I might do a podcast about uh, about names that when you read them in the in the Target books or whatever, or saw them written down and then heard them for the first time, I've still not got over crinoid. Uh, the crinoid. Um, and now this is nifty, isn't it? Because uh, they've established that people are recognised by their voice print. Again, um, yeah, and they don't know what Taryn Capel looks like. I think I think Caldor City, you need to you t- need to pay more attention to faces. I'm all for not judging by appearances, but I think, uh, I, yeah, I, I think a photo fit is not a it's not an unnecessary thing to add to the list of things when you're compiling your dossier on uh, megalomaniac scientists on the run. Um, uh, but yes, the the whole the fact that we yes we recognise people because their voice printer is on the command circuit. Uh, look at that, and that's great. The shadow of the robot, poor old pool carrying in front of it. Um, and here's a line you can have some fun with. I think is this the one? It's always amused me as a child. Um, and he's got a. So is this is this where he says the uh, I, I think I mean I'm I'm pausing now just for a terrible double entendre no no it's not the way he's got anyway we'll but yes here we are his pool carrying in front of the the see-through door that has the shadow of the robot that's that's really spooky stuff you know this is this is it's Saturday tea time this is as close Doctor gets to sort of alien you know scary um, terrifying stuff on a on a sort of space vessel sort of thing look at that that's brilliant the smoking robot coming through the door this is action-packed doctor who um i think you're quite right ivanov off you go to blow things up um uh that was a great sequence that and this and this is you know stuff uh with two supporting characters who we never see again not in tv's doctor who i know both actors return to the roles which is delightful uh, whereas David Bailey played the Celestial Toymaker for Big Finish. Um, and Miles Fothergill, SV7, a picture turned up of him on the set of Blake 7 the other day where he was incredibly buff. Um, it, I, and, and, and sometimes bad is where um, our brothers from bondage and we will be irresistible. We will release more of our brothers from bondage, and we will be irresistible. I mean, there's certain parties where you can say that, and it means an entirely different thing. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you want a double entendre, I'll give you one. Um, um, so, yeah, you've got the, the, the helium thing. I've never done the... In, uh, 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 the inhaling helium thing although i i seem to think it's all rage i know my son has told me that some of he and his friends have done it at parties inhaling helium from a balloon i think it can be quite dangerous so it's one of those things when you have 
teenage sons you just have to be a bit bolshy about, but know that no matter what you say, they're going to do the things anyway. Oh, it's, it's hard being a parent. Um, and who'd have thought that, yes, but, but oh, D84. Oh, that is... He didn't even get to do anything brave, you think. But of course, he 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 does shortly after. But that's horrible, um, and and you know the doctor is is clearly upset, which is quite right. Because Tom Baker's doctor is not always upset when something bad happens to people. In fact, I think he's more upset about D eighty four than he is about <laughs> sort of Varsh or um, or even Lawrence Scarman. Um, but. That's what sort of keeps you guessing with with Tom Baker. That uh, that sometimes unpredictable, sometimes difficult, but always otherworldly uh, doctor. He good, isn't he? Um, yeah, lucky he's got no eye for art. <laughs> um, yeah, we might get a chance to use one of these. Um, So, yes, yeah, so I'm going to burn out your brain very, very slowly. So this is where the Lasersen probe uh, is used to torture the Doctor. Oh, but he says, doesn't he, don't say you're one of those boring villains that's going to gloat. So we get a little bit what you would nowadays call uh, meta. Um, uh, and it's the sort of thing that I think Tom Baker had a bit more fun with later on. But um, everybody's taking the whole thing so seriously. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't come across like that in, in such a way. Uh, great shot of Leela in the in the cupboard. Camera work is so good, um, but even the sound effects as well. It's it's just a very serious, a production of serious intent, albeit one that's being made for you know children's television at tea time with a with a man with it's, uh, it's a production with serious intent. Says Toby. Immediately cut to a man with silver and green face. <laughs> but but yes, I, nonetheless. I I, th I think it is, um, and of course the kids watching will be going. Oh yeah, his voice is changing, uh, and you're slightly one step ahead of the uh, the villain. Now, why he doesn't notice his voice has changed uh, doesn't really matter. Um, it's it's a it's a nifty uh, way that has been seeded um, to you know to overcome the villain and d84 is going to do his it's going to do his thing uh, D uh, gregory de polney who plays d84 uh became a great voice teacher at uh, rada or drama teacher at rada uh, and in fact my friend mark i know because he did he's done other drama schools too mark with whom i did the do not throw hands at me thing that we then did on a film set i remember all my mates had left manchester and i stayed and I remember sort of living in a bit of sort of limbo. I got a call out of the blue from my friend Mark. Oh, and Mark, uh, hello, my, goodbye, my friend. Well, I'm and I'm talking about a friend, my Mark, who I'm talking about. Yes, he rang me out of the blue, and he was at drama school and said, uh, our, "Our teacher of voice, uh, he's called Gregory De Polney. He's D84, and he was chuffed because it's the one sort of Doctor Who thing that he would sort of know anyway. Uh, and he immediately rang me to tell me, which I thought was lovely because it was it was when we'd all sort of dissipated a little bit. And and Mark and I then didn't speak again for ages and uh, and have occasionally over the years. And then uh, he got in touch fairly recently because his kids love Doctor Who, and and through that. Uh, his son Dylan listened to my say my Doctor Who scarf and sent me some artwork, and that is the artwork that is the artwork for D84. 
this series of podcasts and videos. And that's all done by Dylan Patterson, son of Mark. Uh, and so his da- Dylan's dad has seen the robots of death and that's what seeded, that's what started the long road to the, this broadcast having a logo. I like how it all comes together. Um, I don't think it matters that I've talked through the ending massively. I mean, I, I, I lo- yeah, uh, it is definitely worth acknowledging that D84's self-sacrifice is very sad and he gets to say goodbye my friend and uh, that makes me a little bit sad and a little bit teary um i, I like the the treatment of the robots voices that gives it the repeated cool cool and and reminds us that they're mechanical for all their beauty and charming diction when that goes wrong it's you know it's a robotic process um so actually yeah voice voice becomes very interesting in all sorts of areas in this episode um yeah, I wish there was a chance to be a little sadder about D84 within within the episode. It's quite, you know, there's no... This had been an American thing. He, he might have had some sort of space funeral. Um, and I've to look, I, I love the Doctors. I mean, in, in any other person, that sort of I'm a time lord, all this sort of thing, it would seem arrogant, but he does it in such a sort of throwaway... He's got intensity, but he's got a sort of throwaway quality about him as well, which... Which is sort of, it's paradoxical and contradictory, but it and it works. Oh, a fade, another fade. Uh, so right, three out of the four episodes fades into the titles. Why do I care? I don't know. I just like noticing things. Uh, and what I've noticed about the robots of death is that it never fails to deliver top marks to everybody involved. I mean, I did, I did pick on the two or three. Uh, tiny moments that never quite work for me. That's interesting because that's contrary to what I'm intending to do with this. But I think it's because I've taken for granted that everyone will agree with me that this is absolutely brilliant. So it, it seems less less egregious of me to to to, to point out the bits that uh, that somehow stick out as being bits where they uh, where they either drop that didn't achieve what they wanted to. But there are so many bits uh, where um uh things that could be done serviceably are done in an exemplary manner i think it's i mean i say it's a nine out of ten uh and do you know what i might say it's i might think it's a ten uh and i don't give tens very often um this i don't score things on this podcast i'm just talking about my own personal uh scoring system which i'll occasionally every now and again sit down and score doctor <laughs> Ten? Why? Why not? I've got shelves to put up. I've got children to influence and educate. I've got a partner to pay attention to. I've got I've got I've got a dog to walk. But no, I've I've got money to earn and uh, scripts to write and uh, CVs to send off. And uh, but I'll I still I'll score doctor out of ten because I, I feel it's important. Um, I do I do think that's great. I hope you've enjoyed that. I hope you came into it loving it, or if you came into it not loving it, uh, that's maybe helped you to go and look at it and uh, and see it in a in a positive light. Um, so my favourite things. I, I said it's going to be hard to choose. I'm probably not going to choose an actor, which is is my default because I'm. I do so enjoy the performances in Doctor Who, but I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna choose the cast. I think it's so well cast. Um, 
that they they sort of deserve a they they they, they get a best ensemble nod at the international Emmys, uh, because I think I think they're they're they're, they're very very. Where am I? No, no, I have to because I also like the world building of Boucher's script. I really like the world building, and 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 that includes what he does with the characters, but also there's the design. Uh, I mean, from costume set to lighting. Um, so I've got three things there, and I can choose two. So one strictly should be for episode four, and one should be, um, uh, you know, an overall bonus thing. But you know, the cast and the design and the world building is all in episode four, so that's okay. So what's going to be, kids? Uh, cast, well, be. Do you know what? I'm always choosing the blooming actors because I am one, and because, well, if you've listened to enough of this, you don't need me to explain what. Uh, and you don't need me to give you evidence. So, do you know what? I'm going to choose, and because it's not a Robert Holmes script either, I'm going to choose the world. And I think because the world has lived on, there have been Caldor City spin-offs, and Big Finish has has, has revisited the world and, and continues to do so. Um, to have made such an impact with four episodes to create a society that has sustained itself and that has come back, but not in the TV series, and yet there's still enough on television to give you so much of, of, of that backstory and that world and the characters who inhabit it. So the world building, Caldor, all of that, the society. And I think, because I don't often enough, the design, which is going to be Kenneth Sharp set design, um, Elizabeth Waller's costume design and uh, Duncan Brown's lighting design and the makeup and, and Briggs is it I mean, just the, I think we call it production design the holes and the visual effects Richard Conway's visual effects so I think the design as an all-encompassing where which is often Doctor Who falls down in one area through no fault of anybody's because it's the nature of you know the sheer ambition of the show and the resources available to it so i think when it fires on all cylinders visually uh that needs to be celebrated so i'm sorry uh, russell hunter pamela salem david bailey david collings brian croucher gregory de polne tanya rogers Tarek Yunus, miles fothergill uh and all the robot actors um uh, you do deserve a collective nod um but this time it's gonna uh, it this you, you, it's your Martin Scorsese moment. I'm afraid you 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 get an honourable mention, but you're you're not gonna you're not gonna take the gong. So what is? I wonder if Gary will choose any of those things. <laughs> Let's see what Gary Russell has chosen. I'm not going to win this one because uh, I don't think I've got any of the things. I will see it as a victory if he chooses one of the things I choose. My favourite thing in episode four is. It's the reveal. It's the reveal of Dask as Taron Capel, which comes at a brilliant moment because I remember thinking even back then, I wasn't sure who the villain was. I mean, the body count was pretty high. There weren't that many options. And yet somehow that moment where you start with, with uh, Tuse and Ivanov in the pilot control area and Dask is trying to get in and they're going, no, no, don't let him in. The doctor, don't let him in. And then it cuts to the outside and Dask is there in full SV7 style costume with the green face and the silver lining. And, and he's looking like a human robot. And I loved it. I loved it then. And I love it even more now. David Bailey's performance is magnificent. 
And so the reveal of Dask is fantastic. And then it's so beautifully paid off towards the end of the episode where you have the Doctor strapped to a sort of a gurney and there's the big lasersome probe about to be dropped into him. And the Doctor looks up at Dask, stroke Taran Capel, and, and says, you know, oh, I suppose you're going to give me one of those boring megalomaniac speeches about all your master plan, blah, blah, blah. And in a, in a way that is completely and utterly based on uh, Goldfinger, Taran Capel, stroke Dask, just goes, no, I'm, I'm going to kill you. Love it, love it. So the reveal of Dask as the villain and the way it is done and the, the portrayal into his madness is just my favourite thing of episode four. And then you ask for a fifth thing, um, which is very easy for me, because it's the main reason I love Robots of Death. It is a very rare case of Doctor Who successfully in just four episodes, actually successfully in really episode one, in one big sequence in episode one, uh, where all the crew talk about the death of Chubb. And, uh, and, and it starts with Ivana going, one of you murdered him. And everyone goes, well, one of us, surely. And he goes, that's what I said. And you get this whole realisation these people don't like each other. And for me, the thing that makes Robots of this so brilliant is, is the world building, is the design element and everything coming together. So you have these people who are trapped on a sand miner who've got time to probably an hour every day to make their faces up and wear the most stupidly ludicrous costumes. And they have all these art deco sets and everything is beautiful for them and they are beautiful people and they think they're beautiful people and, and they have the time to do this because this is a robot-led society. They have nothing else to do. Once every five or six days, some Lucanol or something turns up and they all run and they press their buttons and they capture the Lucanol and then they go back to doing nothing and the robots run everything. And that sense of world building and that sense of how they actually hate each other. They, they aren't friends, they're barely colleagues. There's, there's nothing but distaste and distrust between them. Boucher's script is just magnificent. Every line, there's no lines wasted, there's nothing wasted. And he creates, and particularly in episode one, he creates this world and it's beautiful, it's amazing. And it's very rare in Doctor Who that something is so complete that, that you know, you know everything that's going on, you know the history of everything, you've got all the stuff about the first families and all of that, it's all there with this beautiful dialogue and added to it is the fantastic sets and the costumes and the makeup and of course the beautiful, beautiful robots. The Vought robots are just one of the most beautiful creations in the history of Doctor Who. So that's my fifth big reason for why I love this story and uh, I hope you enjoy watching it, Toby, because if you don't, I shall be very upset and, and frankly, I shall think very little of you. I shall, I shall tell everyone that you're the person that doesn't like robots of death and nobody will ever want to give you a cup of tea ever again. Cheers, Toby. Bye-bye. Oh, thanks, Gary. Um, <laughs> now, see what he did there. He chose both of my things but called them one thing because he called the world building, the scripting <laughs> and the design. Uh, which was very canny of him. Uh, I don't care. I don't care whether I win. Or the, I, I mean, I do want to win one. That's my aim. <laughs> I, I don't know what episode this is going to be. <laughs> but I still haven't won. Um, but I don't care. But, and, but he made me think there as well. Again, what I've really enjoyed about this process is occasionally being given uh, an alternative insight. And not just, oh, somebody loves a story I think's a bit naff. 
because that's not what's happened here. But that idea about the decadence and and them ha- and them hating each other, um, and people hating each other can be a bit boring in drama. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure when we get to a fifth, sixth Doctor and Perry story, they don't hate each other, but the the bickering sometimes doesn't it doesn't quite work. And, and I think it's a shame for those two actors who I think are great and, and do much better when they when they get on. Um, is that bickering can sometimes be childish and annoying, um, but here it's not. Um, it's it, it it utterly works, and the dialogue sings, and the characters work, and the actors do it well. But and you could, if you were ungenerous, look at those costumes and go, well, they're Im- impractical. Well, certainly the hats, but I love the hats, um, and that that's silly, wacky space age designer thinking. But it's not. They're designed to to reflect the fact that these people don't have to do all that much so they as he says take an hour putting their makeup up and tart themselves up and preen and we live i mean we, we, as i'm recording this you know there's a bit of consternation about influencers going to dubai during lockdown to take photos of themselves at, and preen and uh, uh and, and i've seen a little bit not the influencer world but i've i've, I've seen a little bit of the the world of 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 people who spend an awful lot of time on their appearance because of, you know, and I, I feel for them in a way because because the world that they've decided to inhabit is one where you are scrutinised all of the time. And the image that is given out is, but look, we're one of the beautiful people and everything comes to us. Well, one, you have to work to maintain that image and it's and it's built on rocky foundations because we all age and crumble. But two, it, it, it doesn't give you happiness and and you and you see a lot of sort of bitching and avarice and crabbiness and um, backstabbing and all those sorts of things in that world which wants to present itself as nirvana as heaven as shangri-la as you know this is where the beautiful people are isn't it wonderful don't you want to be us but you're not happy these people are not happy and these people they go back stinking rich they have a job where they can lounge around um they they preen they spend all you know they get made up uh, they're comfortable but they hate each other it doesn't bring you happiness um and as i'm getting older i'm realizing that there are a lot of things that i think i see other people doing that would be the key to making me happy they're being exhibited by people who aren't happy um, because there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and if there is you'd probably you'd probably bang my shins on it uh, and he'd put it put the gold in my pockets and they'd break so i i like that idea that this yes this this decadence um has underneath it a, a core of dislike and sadness and anger and bitterness and spite because that's a that's a lesson to us all uh whereas what does make me happy is doctor who <laughs> it's a children's television program about as people that paint their faces silver and green uh, <laughs> uh and uh and 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 a sweet robot detective who sacrifices himself uh, and all of those things um i really enjoyed that i hope you enjoyed that as well um i think we should give the robots of death a big hand but whatever you do Please don't throw it at me.
Sadly, since I recorded this commentary, David Bailey, who played Dask, who I mentioned quite a lot uh, over the four episodes and in the present tense, uh, has passed away at the age of 83. What an interesting, enigmatic actor he was. Of course, he played the Celestial Toymaker for Big Finish. And, of course, having had a sabbatical in the 80s, where I think, did I mention this? He had a sort of carpentry business. He was certainly an expert in making furniture. He then went back to the acting profession, taking it by storm by appearing in Gladiator and three of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. So what a career he had. But I just wanted to address the fact that in the commentary, I refer to him as still being around because I recorded it before he died in early March. Thank you so much for listening to this omnibus edition of Happy Times and Places, presented by me, Toby Haydock. My special guest was Gary Russell, who you can find on Twitter at Twilight Streets. Thanks very much to the patrons who make these podcasts possible, who include Richard Straw, Stephen Moffat, Rob Leonard, Peter Harness, Ruben Herfindahl, Stephen White, Andrew Willis, Michael Williams, Rich Wiggins, Adam Westwood, Gary Wales, Apollo C. Vermouth, Reynard Toombs, Sabrina Tirabassi, Nick Temple, Sidney Wilson, John Williams, Rich Wiggins, Kevin West, Peter Ware, Gavin Ware, Alistair Wallace, Gary Wales, John Turner, Sidney Trout, Paul Taylor Greaves, Adam Stone, Dave Stevens, David Spofforth, David Spencer, Richard Smith, Paul Shields, Jim Sangster, Samuel and Tom Selinsky. The music was by Dave Gates and the artwork by Dylan Patterson. If you too would like to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Toby Tiers start from as little as £3 a month and it's fairly egalitarian. You get pretty much everything on the lowest tier. Although there, are, there is the odd trinket at the uh, higher levels. But most of the material, the bonus material, the early releases, all of that stuff is from £3 a month and you actually get a 10% discount on top of that if you sign up for a whole year. That's on patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. Uh, if you can't stand the idea of a monthly commitment but still would like to buy me, say, a coffee, even just a metaphorical one, you could do that at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. Uh, and you can do something that actually costs you no money whatsoever if that is your preference. And I totally understand because I know that times are tough and the world's just going a little bit bonkers. So do you know what? I'll tell you something that costs you nothing. Go to iTunes or your podcast outlet. Give me five gorgeous, lovely stars. That really improves my algorithms. And my algorithms, well, I'm 47. They're not the algorithms they once were. So if you could give those a little bit of a tweak and perhaps even a couple of lines of review, positive reviews only, if you don't like it, what are you still doing here? You're listening to the post-credits bit. That's that's a sign of masochism. But if you do like this stuff, it really helps because a lot of people just digest it uh, and smile and think, oh, that was nice. But if you tell other people, it really helps me. And it means that I'm not sitting in a cupboard shouting at the moon which is sort of what it feels like sometimes. I'm in a cupboard. I can't even see the moon. It's actually really hot. It's a beautiful day. Nobody's listening at this point. I could say what I like, couldn't I? Invade Wigan. Um, Let's just see uh, how many of you do that. (laughs) Okay. So basically, the long and the short of it, it's never short with me. The long of it is five-star reviews and nice reviews, five-star ratings, nice reviews, all of that sort of thing. Uh, on all of your podcasts, particularly the Apples and the iTunes, really just help uh, 
to make me look good to passing trade and uh, on the on the internet street corner I'm hanging around at uh, flashing my happy times and my happier places all right I think you've got the message why don't you come and see me in Manchester on a Tuesday night doing stand-up comedy with four special guests uh, at 8pm at XS Malarkey Comedy Club. Of course, if you can't get to Manchester, do you know what we've done? We've gone online as well. We're carrying on the shows that we did during the lockdown, but we're doing those on the first Sunday of every month. Twitch.tv forward slash XS Malarkey. They're absolutely free. There's a donation option, but you don't have to uh, donate if you can't or don't want to. And it's a full night of comedy with four special guests from the international comedy circuit and Muggins ear gluing it together like affable adhesive I, I'm, I'm going to stop now because I, I really don't think anybody is listening up to this point I, you know, probably stopped when the closing music started there we go oh dear it's a lonely life <laughs>